On the first time I visited Israel, uh, 25 or more years ago, we stayed for some days in a kibbutz, a Jewish community, right on the side of the Sea of Galilee. It was an amazingly beautiful place. Our cabins were within 20 meters of the edge of the water. And above us on the other side were the Golan Heights, where we'd been told that 15 years before, or just over 15 years before, the Syrians would roll big boulders down the hill in an attempt to scare the Jewish people away from that area so that they could take the whole of the Golan Heights area down to the Sea of Galilee. We swam in the water. We saw the sunrise or the sunset around the Sea of Galilee for three or four or five days. One evening, we had a, an illustrated talk by an old man who was a member of this kibbutz. I discovered that he was only 70, but he looked about 120. Uh, and he died just a few years ago, well into his 90s. He was the world's foremost expert on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, um, uh, something like a marine archaeologist, something like this. And he gave us a talk and a slideshow because just two years before, so this was 1988, just two years before, in 1986, there was a significant drought in the north of Israel. And the sea level of the Sea of Galilee came to the lowest it had been on record. And just at the end of this drought, as the water level dropped to its lowest and the rains came not long afterwards, people found something interesting on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where we stayed, on the west side. They found what turned out to be a boat, a wooden boat that had been submerged in the mud, as it turned out, for almost 2,000 years. A boat that was about 28 feet long. What was astonishing was the rescue of this boat. Because the drought was about to end, what do you do with a boat that's been submerged in mud that basically is so fragile, it's held together by the waterlogged wood and the mud. If you bring it out, it will just disintegrate. And so we saw this fascinating story of the rescue of this boat so fragile that they pumped, uh, oh, I've forgotten the name of the word, but they pumped this chemical around the boat and not only floated it, but covered it. And it took 10 years or more to pump enough chemicals into it to preserve it. And now it's on display in a new museum on the side of the Sea of Galilee. This boat, 2,000 years old roughly, nicknamed, obviously, the Jesus Boat. 28 feet long, not all of it is left. There's no sails or anything like that. There's no graffiti on the boat that says, Jesus slept here, or something like that. But this was a typical boat, a fishing boat, that would be on the Sea of Galilee. 28 feet long is enough to fit in 12 disciples and Jesus, probably a few fish as well. 153 of them, maybe. There was no evidence that Jesus was in this boat. But this is what it would have been like. A smallish boat, a wooden boat, 
no downstairs, upstairs sort of thing, but an open boat with, of course, some form of sail. Remember, many of Jesus' disciples, not all, but many, were experienced fishermen. They'd probably grown up in fishing families. They'd been on boats since they were boys, probably. And certainly some of them, their trade, their business, their income came from fishing on this beautiful Sea of Galilee. They'd spend their nights on the boat. And even to this day, the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater sea, is still fairly abundant in fish. All sorts of different types of fish are still caught there. But these fishermen were now following this enigmatic character, Jesus Christ, gathering the crowds around him as he taught, and as he did a number of astonishing miracles. They'd heard his teaching, they'd seen his miracles, they were following him with a combination of faith and uncertainty, we might say. They were still learning about this man. We know much more about him than they did. We might feel envious of them to actually live with him and talk with him and eat fish with him, but we actually know much more than they did during his earthly life. And one day, Jesus got into a boat with them. Maybe he'd done this many times. We're not sure. But on this particular day, Jesus got into a boat with them. And it seemed just like another normal day. In Luke's gospel, there's no context for this. It's just one day. In other gospels, it seems to be at the end of the day, after a busy day of teaching and speaking with crowds around him. But here, one day. One day, we're told, at the beginning of this reading, he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus seems to be taking the initiative here, as often he did. It's not the disciples saying, come, let's go for a boat ride. But Jesus getting into the boat with them, let's go to the other side of the lake, to the east side, the side underneath the Golan Heights, the side where I'd stayed all those years ago. Maybe away from the crowds, the main Jewish areas were on the west, in the north, a little town of Capernaum where Jesus was based, and various other villages around the side of the sea, and further south, the pagan Roman city of Tiberias, which was being built. Away from there to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're not told here in Luke's Gospel why. No reason's given and no reason is needed for us. And as they set out, Jesus fell asleep. Well, you might be like that. I'm like that. Gosh, I sit in a train, the LRT, or a plane, or car, and I just fall asleep straight away. Uh, at the end of a day or the beginning of a day. Maybe Jesus is tired after a busy day. Maybe just the rocking of the boat gently on the lake puts you to sleep. It's an idyllic lake. It's not so big. You can see across to the other side a few kilometers. You can drive around it in a couple of hours. And it's set amongst hills and ravines around most sides of it. It's a very beautiful and very peaceful place. Jesus, in the boat, dozes off. Maybe not unexpectedly. And then suddenly, 
the impression is that this windstorm whips up fairly quickly. Jesus falls asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake. Luke doesn't give us any build-up to this. He doesn't say after a while or gradually the wind began to rise. The sense is of something fairly sudden. Now, I've never experienced this, and it seems that Jesus' fishing disciples had perhaps never experienced this either, but apparently it happens periodically on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level, so it's very deep uh, below sea level. And around it, as I've said, are hills almost 360 degrees. But there's various ravines or, or, or valleys that come in. And especially on the uh, east side is the row of the Golan Heights with a couple of narrow ravines. And apparently what can happen is where the hot air that hovers over the sea caught between the hills, if somehow somewhere outside this little lake the uh, wind whips up and the cold wind comes down a ravine, meeting, colliding with the hot wind, suddenly the windstorm arises. The word that Luke uses here is a word that you might translate as whirlwind. It doesn't necessarily mean a sort of exactly round and round, but this is strong and sudden and dangerous. And we see that because experienced fishermen are afraid. But Jesus slept. He's already asleep. And it doesn't seem to wake him up. But the disciples, perhaps all of them have been awake anyway, maybe that some had fallen asleep and woken up. They're not just afraid, they're terrified. We get the sense of that as they shake Jesus or speak to him, at least, and make him or wake him. The storm is having the effect at the end of verse 23 of filling the boat with water and they were in danger. Not just that they felt in danger, they were in danger. Often we feel danger when there's none, but they were in danger. It's a real danger. The word is often used of, of a life-threatening danger, not just a danger of getting wet, but something much more serious than that. And the boat, after all, is filling with water. This is dangerous. They could sink. They could die. And so they went to, him, to wake him. Maybe already they've been trying to bail out water from the boat and realize that this is becoming increasingly futile. So they went and woke him. And what they say here, as it's recorded in Luke here, Master, Master, that is the repetition of that title, that address, Master, they don't say Lord or Teacher, but Master here, the repetition of it suggests an urgency and a desperation. It's not just Jesus, wake up, what do you think we should do? There's a little bit of a wind around. There is something urgent and desperate in the way that they speak to him as they wake him. And that's even clearer when the next words are, we are perishing. These disciples are not like the boy who cried wolf, who gets a little bit upset at some hint of danger and wake up Jesus, something might go wrong. The sense is here of real danger. They are really sinking. The boat is really filling. They really are in danger of perishing. Perishing. 
This is real danger and danger to their life. They are afraid that they are all going to die in this storm. Now, we're used to seeing the terror of stricken ships, I think. We've seen it with ferries in various, mainly Asian cities in recent years. We've seen it increasingly and tragically in the Mediterranean with refugees sinking and drowning, including dozens of children. We from Australia have been seeing this from afar in a way with the boat people refugees over the last 40 years trying to reach Australia. And sadly, Australia has such a, a terrible uh, treatment of such people. I've read accounts of Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees fleeing to Australia and the terror of being on a tiny boat that is hardly seaworthy trying to get there before it sinks and drowns. It must be an awful experience. Yes, this is a lake, it's not a great big ocean. But these experienced fishermen are terrified. Probably there were no lifeboats. We might think of Jonah and the sailors' desperation as their boat looked as though it was going to flounder. As they called out, the pagan sailors called out to their gods, but to no avail. Maybe we've seen it in Hollywood with the sinking of Titanic, for example, the desperation of Leonardo DiCaprio, amongst others. <laughs> notice, at least we're not told this, but notice the disciples do not pray to God. Now, maybe they did and we're not told, but it doesn't seem that they pray to God, and, and surely you'd expect them to do that. They would have known the book of Jonah. They would have known the Psalms. Why don't they fall on their knees and pray out to God to calm the storm? We had in our first Psalm reading from Psalm 107, a passage about God who raises up the storms and then he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. If they knew their Bibles, wouldn't they pray to God? Psalm 65, you silence the roaring of the seas and waves. Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And of course, there's the great famous story of the Old Testament that every Israelite and Jew would have known so well the conquering of the Red Sea, how God rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. But where did they turn? Not, it seems, to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but urgently and desperately, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, we might interpret those words as if Jesus is merely... Wake, uh, sorry, the disciples are merely waking Jesus up. Master, Master, we're perishing. Come and join us. <laughs> but much more likely, no. The implication of waking him up, Master, Master, is we need your help. They are calling to him for help. Master, Master, we are perishing. 
And the implication here is that these disciples have some faith, at least, in Jesus. We often understand this story as if the disciples are totally faithless about Jesus. But that's not the case. They have some faith in Jesus. The waking of him seems to imply that. And it's to him that they turn. And Jesus' response, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. The language of the Psalms. What does Jesus do? I don't know if you see, I don't know if they're in Malaysia, these bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? To be honest, they're ridiculous. Would you get up and say, peace be still to waves? I mean, that's what Jesus did, but it's not what we're meant to do. We don't, we're not meant to do everything that Jesus did. It's more important to know what would Jesus say, or what, would, what should we do, not what necessarily he did, but what he did is rebuke the wind and the raging waves. That's astonishing. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, nearly 200 years before Jesus, a bad ruler, let me tell you, over this area of Palestine, he claimed that he could control the weather and the storms. He couldn't, but Jesus did. Maybe this is part of the deliberate background here to show that Jesus has this supreme power far beyond what other megalomaniac rulers ever claim. Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waves. But of course, anyone can rebuke the wind or the waves. The effect, though, was that they were calm and still. Now, I had thought, being Malaysia, what we could do is try this. You know, what would Jesus do? Speak to the weather. So what we could all get up and do is walk outside here and shout out to the weather. Well, there's no storm. Why don't we say, let it snow? <laughs> After all, I've heard that so many millions of times on the loudspeaker systems around Malaysia in the recent months. Why don't we try, let it snow? Do you think it would? Of course not. We don't have this sort of power. We can't control the weather with a word. But Jesus said, rebuke, or Jesus rebuked the waves, the wind, and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. It's an interesting word used here. Jesus rebuked the wind. The word rebuke is usually used in a context su suggesting something of evil. It may not mean that every storm is evil, but here I think we could say there is. You see, this is evil's attempt by storm to drown Jesus, to kill him before the cross. This is evil's attempt to circumvent the cross, to get rid of this Jesus who, of course, is threatening to squash and kill all evil. He's already been doing some of that in some of the other miracles. And here the same. Rebuking the storm is somehow exercising power over and against evil. We know that Jewish people thought of the sea as evil. They were not seafaring people. 
That's part of why what Jonah does is so remarkable to get on a boat. And it's partly perhaps why at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, there's the promise of no more sea. And why the story of the creation suggests God's deliberate and explicit power over sea monsters and sea and water. So already there's perhaps the context of thinking of the sea as something evil, especially the ocean, maybe not the Sea of Galilee quite so much, but certainly storms. But by rebuking it and calming it, Jesus is demonstrating a power over evil. He's thwarting evil's attack, which is against him, to try to kill him. And what this is saying then is that evil, death, and Satan will not prevail over Jesus at all. Is that what we believe? Because that's part of what this is teaching us. Not that Jesus will calm the storms of our life in that allegorical nonsense way that this passage is often used. But that rather the power of Jesus thwarts all evil. It's not promising us that we'll never be in the middle of a storm. And it's not promising us that we might never drown either. But it is promising us that evil will not prevail against the person and the purposes of Jesus Christ, and thus also his people, the church. Is that what we believe? When we're confronted with a world which is becoming increasingly and explicitly evil in so many different ways, the evil of militant atheism, the evil of IS and Al-Qaeda, the evil of corrosive immorality promoted so many Western countries in our world. How do we respond to those things? Fear? Terrified? Anxious for the future of the church? The future of the gospel? Anxious for our own lives, perhaps? Or do we respond with faith in the power of Jesus? Not a simplistic faith for the here and now sudden peace and calm. Many of the 19th century hymns sort of idolize the peace and calm, the still waters of Galilee. But that's not biblical Christianity. It's Victorian ideology for a peaceful, calm life. We're not promised a calm life, and this story doesn't promise a calm life. But it directs us to the power of Jesus over all evil. And there was a calm on this occasion, after this storm, a calm by a mere word, not really a mere word, I shouldn't say that, a, a divinely powerful mere word from Jesus. He speaks, and it's so. Does that remind you of anyone? What shouldn't remind you of Herod the Great or Roman emperors or Antiochus Epiphanes IV, but it should remind you of the God of the Old Testament who speaks, and it happens time and time again. For what Yahweh does, Jesus does. Don't think of Yahweh as God the Father, which is often a mistake we make. That the God of the Old Testament is the God that we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit. What Yahweh does, Jesus does, because Jesus is... Yahweh, not in a complete sense, not that Yahweh is the Son, but Yahweh is God, 
and Jesus is divine, the second person of the Trinity. Who is he? Not the one who calms storms in our life. No promise that ships will not sink that we're on. But rather the all-powerful God. Everything is in his hands. Evil is ultimately conquered in and by him. Nor should we think that this calm is a mere coincidence. Sometimes we think that where we pray something, it happens, and then we think, well, do we know that God's done this, or is it just going to happen anyway? When a storm stops, it takes a long time for the calm to come in place. Many years ago, when I lived in England for postgraduate study, each year I'd have a week's holiday in Wales at friend's house, and a friend and I would go, and just nearby in North Wales was a very small, beautiful lake. And on good days, which are rare in Wales, <laughs> the reflections on the lake were superb. And my friend uh, is a sort of avid photographer. And there was one day we came to the lake and it was picture perfect. Stopped the car, suddenly jumps out with his tripod and his camera. And a little rowboat set out from the side of the lake. And the little ripples of a rowboat destroyed the image. My friend, because he's tenacious, said, we'll wait. It's okay, because I just sit in the car reading a book. <laughs> or two. It took over half an hour before it was completely calm. Only, the ripples only from a little rowboat. You imagine this storm sinking a, a fishing ship. How long normally it would take to be calm. Certainly, surely, more, much more than half an hour. But the sense here, as with every miracle of Jesus, is of an instant, complete resolution. When he heals people, they don't go through physiotherapy to their healing. When he heals people of leprosy, you don't wait three months till the skin's all cleaned up. It's instant and complete. And so it is here. He speaks, and this storm that's rocking this boat and filling it with water, flat. Calm, instantly, fully, remarkable. But that's the power of his word. We can't do that, even if we are wearing WWJD bracelets. We can't do that. Who is this? Who is this? Well, the danger over. And we're left with two questions, literally left with two questions, because he said to them, where is your faith? It's not a rebuke for absence of faith. He's not saying you are faithless. After all, they've woken him up for help. There is some faith there. Where is your faith? They're actually gentle words. They're teaching words in a way, they're discipling words, they're training words. Are you learning? Are you seeing more? Are you understanding more of who I am? Where is your faith? They are growing in faith. They're living the other side of the cross from us. We've got it all in, in scripture, but they're still getting it piece by piece. And what Jesus is showing them there is just another block, a building block to build their faith more solidly and securely in him, 
in Jesus, the Lord of life, the one who does what God does through the Old Testament. And maybe then he's saying to them something like this, do you really think that evil can destroy me? Do you really think that evil would prevail, that I would die? Do you really think that the mission I've come to do to save the world and forgive us sins by my atoning death on the cross will be thwarted by a little storm on a little lake? Don't you know who I am fully? Don't you know that I'm the Lord of life? Where's your faith? Because I'm sure that Luke leaves these questions in for us, the reader. Not just Jesus speaking to those 12 disciples on the boat of Galilee, where's your faith, but to us. Where's ours? We're not on that boat. We haven't experienced this, but we have the record of it. Where's our faith? Does our faith dry up in the face of fear? That's one of the great things we ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters who face real fear in our world today. That the fear of persecution, of death, will not lead them to fear, but rather stronger faith. And after all, what have we to be afraid of? For we know more than these disciples. We know that death is not the end. It's lost its sting. That even a storm that might take our physical life will not separate us from the love of God in Christ. For in the end, we have nothing to fear. No storm, no opposition, no attack of evil's arrows can quash us. And so often Jesus leads us, as he leads the disciples perhaps here deliberately, into some form of trial or danger to grow us, deepen us and strengthen us in our faith and trust in his sovereignty, supremacy and total power. We have nothing to fear. But the other question, the question that comes at the end then is the disciples' question. They're afraid, they're terrified, they're marveling at what's going on. They say to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and waves, uh, winds and water, and they obey him. That is, this miracle has taken their understanding of Jesus one step further. And again, yet again, they are amazed. They've been amazed before. They're amazed back in chapter, 40, chapter 4, verse 36. What, is, what sort of an utterance is this? He commands unclean spirits and they come out. Who then is this? That he can even calm the wind and the waves. Their faith is building. It's growing. They're marveling. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're astounded. Who then is this? And I'm sure Luke leaves this question for us, the reader. For he, like all the Gospels, is writing as an evangelist to show people Jesus. Who then is this? Do you know? Do we really know who this is, this Jesus? And where is your faith? Who is this? This Jesus is certainly divine. He's acting like God, 
like God in human form, in human flesh. And the same God of the Old Testament is this Jesus. He's not Yahweh's son. He is indeed the same God who is called Yahweh in the Old Testament. Awesome, majestic, his divine power unleashed in a word. This is the first of four consecutive miracles that you're going to see in recent, the next weeks from Luke 8. And they all show some form of the conquest of evil or death, demons, and so on. Defeated each time. But as we keep reading through Luke, even beyond this chapter and this sequence of miracles, the culmination is not simply a display of power. Wow. For then the, the disciples are sent on a mission. And they exercise some similarity, not fully, but some similarity of power, but Jesus' power. And it leads to Herod being quite perplexed about what really is going on. Who is this Jesus and these people following him? And that leads then in the next chapter, chapter 9, to Jesus challenging Peter, the chief of the disciples. They've said here, who then is this? And then Jesus says, who do you, or who do people, and who do you say that I am? What's your answer? You're the Messiah, Peter will say in chapter 9. But then, of course, comes the turn, the twist, the shock, the sting in the tail. Because immediately, and then repeatedly, Jesus looks to his death on a cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He keeps saying to them. And they can't cope with that. If this is the Lord of life, if this is the one who's got power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to conquer the wind and the waves, this doesn't seem to fit that he's going to die. Is evil going to prevail finally on a cross in Jerusalem? But no, because that's the great paradox of his power that it's in his death that the word of life is fully unleashed. And it's through his death that we understand more fully than the disciples here on this boat, because we have the full record already, that the conquest of evil, the conquest of death, the conquest of sin, is found in the most unlikely place, on a cross. And even more than this story, it tells us that we have nothing to fear. We have nothing at all to fear. In the heights, in the depths, in the breadths, in the past, in the present, in the future, no angel, no demon, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We have nothing, nothing, nothing to fear at all. Who is this? And where is your faith? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are amazed, as the disciples were, with the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The power that he exercised, the conquest over evil, the invitation to have faith and trust in him alone, and the certainty we can have that because of his death and conquest of death, we are safe with him forever. And we thank you 
And we pray that as we face trials and tribulations, difficulties and pressures in our life, against us, against our faith, that it may strengthen our faith, that we hold fast to Jesus knowing we have nothing to lose and nothing that can be lost because of him. And we thank you in his name. Amen.